Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Um, today, I want to take a little bit of a break from what we were doing. Uh, I was working in the middle of a series on philosophy about the Enlightenment, um, but I, w- I do want to take a break because I do want to keep this somewhat going back and forth between philosophy and literature and literary analysis. And uh, on my website today, I did a post uh, where I uh, posted the poem by Robert Browning, Porphyria's Lover, and did a brief um, analysis of it from the uh, feminist, Marxist, and psychological perspectives. Um, So I wanted to kind of try to also tie this with my uh, website a little more um, so that there's a little back and forth. People can fill in things from here with there and vice versa. So I want to do the analysis uh, of Porphyria's Lover on here as well. Um, Porphyria's Lover was written by Robert Browning, uh, written in the 1830s. Um, Normally, if something is not in public domain, I will not be reading the entire thing, just taking passages out here or there. Uh, One of the good things about older works that are in the public domain is I can present them completely and then uh, analyze them. Uh, in a little more depth. Um, but I will be doing some newer things as well. But this one uh, really is one that I've used a lot with teaching classes. I think it does a good, uh, it makes a good example of how you can apply uh, the types of criticism to something and get a lot more meaning out than what you get from just a straightforward reading. Um, so before I get into the analysis, I want to do a uh, quick reading of it. It's, uh, you'll have to forgive my voice. My voice is a little scratchy today, um, but I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, the rain set early in tonight. The sullen wind was soon awake. It tore the elm tops down for spite and did its worst to vex the lake. I listened with heart fit to break when glided in porphyria. Straight she shut the cold out in the storm and kneeled and made the cheerless grate blaze up and all the cottage warm. Which done, she rose and from her uh, form withdrew the dripping cloak and shawl and laid her soiled gloves by, untied her hat and let the damp hair fall. At last she sat down beside my side, sat down by my side and called me. When no voice replied, she put my arm around her waist and made her smooth white shoulder bare and all her yellow hair displaced and stooping made my cheek lie there and spread over all her yellow hair murmuring how she loved me she too weak for all her heart's endeavor to set its struggling passion free from pride and vainer ties to sever and give herself to me forever but passion sometimes would prevail nor could tonight's gay feast restrain a sudden thought of one so pale for love of her and all in vain so she was come through the wind and rain Be sure I looked at her eyes, happy and proud. At last I knew Porphyria worshipped me. Surprise made my heart swell, and still it grew while I debated what to do. That moment she was mine, mine, fair, perfectly pure and good. I found a thing to do. And all of her hair in one long yellow string I wound three times around her little throat and strangled her. No pain she felt. I'm quite sure she felt no pain. As a shut bud that holds a bee... I warily opened her eyes, again laughed the blue eyes without a stain, and I untightened next the tress around her neck, her cheek once more more blushed bright beneath my burning kiss. I propped her head up as before, only this time my shoulder bore her head, which droops upon it still. 
the shining little rosy head so glad it has its utmost will that all it scorned is is at once that all it scorned at once is fled and i its love am gained instead porphyria's love she guessed not how her darling one wish would be heard and thus we sit together now and all night long we have not stirred and yet god has not said a word <clears throat> okay the action of this poem is fairly straightforward but also fairly odd at the same time um people are two people are in a cabin together the woman comes in the narrator who will assume is a man is already in there um, the woman makes the fire uh, calls out to him when he doesn't respond she places her his head upon her shoulder and puts her hair over him and they're sitting there and he comes to the realization that um, she really loves him and adores him. and so he in that moment decides to take her hair and wrap it around her neck and strangle her and then he repositions her on his shoulder um, and they're sitting in front of the fire and just kind of watching the fire um, now if you just read this through it seems very random and hard to kind of put together why this occurs or what might be some of the motivation um, it's a very odd poem that starts almost um, like a pastoral poem that seems like it's heading to be you know a poem about love and then it takes a really dark turn applying the types of criticism to it though you can start to get a little bit more of an understanding of what's going on here so I want to go through this with three different types of criticism. I want to talk about it from a feminist perspective, uh, then from a Marxist perspective, and then from a psychological perspective. And each one of them kind of adds something to the depth of the understanding of this poem. Uh, now when I do these, I don't want to give the impression that these are um, going to be exhaustive. Um, as far as the feminist perspective, you could do probably, you know, dozens of different feminist themes just on this poem. Uh, same thing with Marxist, same thing with psychological. Uh, I'm just going to give you a few of them from each to kind of give you a, a little better sense and maybe make sense of what's going on a little more. So from a feminist perspective, um, you kind of get a sense from the beginning that she's more of the one in in charge, in power. She's the one that builds the fire. She's the one that calls to him. She's the one that puts his head on her shoulder. Um, so she's very, uh, very much the dominant figure in the relationship in the beginning. Now, there's something that keeps them apart um, and keeps them from being together. And we'll go into those more when we go into the Marxist um, and the psychological. Uh, but from a feminist perspective, this seems to be an inversion of the way, uh, especially back then, male-female relationships would have been. And this may be part of the reason why the narrator feels the need to change the relationship, to change the power dynamic. Because in the beginning, she has all of the voice and he has no voice. And then at the end, towards the end, he literally takes her voice away from her, you know, cuts off her breath. There's no more literal way you can take away someone's voice than to strangle them. <clears throat> and then he also assumes the position of power um, by placing her head upon his shoulder. 
and he's sort of sitting there peacefully with her and kind of, uh, instead of the horror that you would expect, um, from the male perspective, it seems in his mind that he set the universe, uh, in the right order. Um, there's also a lot you could think about with this poem as far as voice. Uh, this is written in the 1830s. This is written in a time where women didn't have a lot of voice. Yes, there were some female writers, and some of them were extremely famous, uh, Robert Browning's wife in particular. But as far as <clears throat> the female voice in the rest of society, it was pretty much silenced. Um, even though this is kind of the time of Queen Victoria, uh, women were still pretty much, aside from the queen, uh, expected to be silent in politics and uh, in affairs of state, except for the queen. She could obviously say and do what she pleased. She was the queen. But the rest of the women were supposed to be docile and submissive to their uh, husbands um, and to men in general. Now, the only exception to that where a woman did have a voice over a man and we'll talk about this more in the Marxist perspective, but it, it, they did have a voice over men who were beneath them. Um, if they were in a lower social class, a woman of a higher class would be above a man of a lower class. Uh, this is part of why the queen, uh, even though is a woman, has the voice over everyone else, because the queen is the queen. She's in the highest social class you can get to which means any man is going to be in a social class below her. Um, <clears throat> so from the feminist perspective, you kind of see even way back then kind of this struggle. Uh, and this is kind of a time, too, where there are becoming more and more uh, female writers. And you're also starting to get, um, you know, some of the uh, first hints at feminism coming up and some of the first hints of, uh, women trying to gain a little bit of uh, standing in society. So I'm going to cut that off for there because we could spend the entire time on any one of these criticisms. But I want to move into the next is the Marxist criticism. Now, from a Marxist perspective, um, this power uh, difference in the beginning makes more sense if you see them as being members of different classes. If she's a woman from a higher class and he's a man from a lower class, she would have power and voice over him. Now, how do we know if she's from a higher class and he's from a lower class? Um, there are some hints in, the, in here, and this is also in England, so this is very much a class-driven society, particularly in the 1800s. Um, she has gloves, uh, hat, uh, uh, shawl, cloak. Um, she's she's dressed in a lot of layers, and she's dressed in things that are finer than most lower-class women would have. Plus, her physical description is not the description of a lower-class woman. Uh, particularly in older literature, the upper classes were always described as being fairer. They were fair-skinned, uh, blonde-haired, uh, she's actually described as blonde hair with blue eyes and very fair skin. Um, so her description would have immediately brought into the mind of the audience that she was upper class. And hence the reason uh, she was above him. Also, the reason for the 
uh, vainer ties that she can't dis dissever. You know, she can't overcome that. Uh, in this time period, you could not date someone outside of your class. I shouldn't say date, I should say marry. You can't marry outside of your class. Um, the peasantry married other peasants. The nobility married other nobility. Um, you might be able to move up a little bit or down a little bit, but for the most part, um, people were pretty much stuck to marrying someone of the same social class. So if she's an upper class woman and he's a lower class man, um, society would have absolutely never allowed them to be together. Um, and some of the reasons I get that he may be of the lower classes, um, it also it also comes from where he's living. Uh, she comes to his cottage. She doesn't come to his chateau. She doesn't come to his manor or his estate. It's a cottage uh, out in the, not in town. It's out in the middle of nowhere. So this kind of gives you the sense that he's probably um, of the lower classes. And so he would never be able to be with her. He would never be able to have her because of the class difference. Um, when he kills her, this is the only way he's able to equalize that class. Um, this is the only way he's actually above to be, to be able to be above her in class. Because now, as a corpse, she has no class whatsoever. <clears throat> From a Marxist perspective, you can also think about this in the sense that one of the critiques of capitalism, and this would have been under the time of uh, colonial capitalism, um, Everything is reduced to ownership. Everything is private property. Um, your, uh, your land, your house, your livestock, your money, everything is private property, including women. Um, women were literally considered the property of men uh, in this time period by law. A woman was the property of her father until she got married, and then the property rights transferred to the husband. Um, one of the <clears throat> uh, reasons that uh, uh, infidelity was considered a crime, uh, it was considered a crime because it was a crime against property. You had stolen someone else's property. You had used someone else's property. So women were very much considered the property of their husbands. <clears throat> and so in this poem, you see her literally becoming an object. Uh, once she's a dead body, she's no longer uh, a human that has a will. Uh, she is strictly an object for him to use as he pleases. Um, also the end where he's sitting there with her and the part where it says, and even God hasn't said a word kind of gives you a sense that the narrator feels his, um, taking her as his possession is something that is even okay. As far as God goes, this is something that's even sanctioned. So you kind of get the sense that this is the, uh, colonial capitalist view of the right of conquest. You know, I have conquered this. I have seized this. It is now mine. Um, so this does, in a lot of ways, uh, reveal a lot about the uh, social structure of the classes, but it also re reveals a lot about the sense of women as property. Uh, as, as I said, originally property of their husbands, and then property of, or a property of their fathers, I mean, and then property of their husbands. <clears throat> now this is also, 
starting to get towards the end of the uh, period of aristocracy, but a lot of the laws are still there. Um, and one of the things that uh, a lot of people have wondered about is, well, why was it such a big deal, in, especially in those days, for a woman to be a virgin when she was married? Um, and a lot of people think it has to do with religion, but actually it has more to do with property than it does with religion. Uh, during the feudal system, you could only pass property to your oldest son. Uh, the second, third, fourth, fifth born sons and none of the daughters were able to um, inherit property. So men were very obsessed with making sure that the son they handed their property to was their son. Um, this is way before the times of blood tests and DNA tests to determine who the actual parent is. Um, so for men, the only way that they could ensure that their son, that, they, that was going to get all of their estate, uh, was their son, was if the wife was a virgin at the wedding and if she was pregnant, got pregnant that night and then conceived a son. Because after that night, <clears throat> it was pretty much up in the air. Uh, there was no way of telling for sure whose child that was. So the idea of uh, property even extends to the idea of virginity in this time period for women. This is why it wasn't as big of a deal for men to retain their virginity. Because there was no, if they had children that were illegitimate, those children didn't have any property rights anyway. Um, a lot of the kings and nobility had lots of illegitimate children on the side who had no rights of inheritance. And so this really all does boil down to uh, an issue of property. <clears throat> okay, uh, I want to switch gears again and go into the psychological. Um, now, the psychological is where this one starts to get really uh, intricate and twisted. Um, if you think about this from a psychological perspective and look at it, one, you have a first-person narrative. This person is telling you the story very calmly about how they murdered a woman and now they're sitting in front of the fire having a nice time with her corpse. Um, this immediately should sort of uh, set off warning signs that you may not be dealing with a uh, narrator who is completely uh, in the realm of sanity. Uh, this also means that it starts to um, cast a little bit of doubt on everything you're told. Now, Edgar Allan Poe is much later than this, but <clears throat> Poe had been working with traditions that had somewhat been around with the idea of the madman or the unreliable narrator. You know, Poe in a lot of his stories uses the unreliable narrator. Uh, Fall of the House of Usher is one example of this. You know, the person telling the story starts to tell you details that make you wonder uh, how much of this is real and how much of this is all in this person's head. So with Porphyria's lover, we start to get this sense of uh, maybe this guy isn't telling us everything or maybe he's not seeing things the right way. <clears throat> uh, some of the things that, you know, kind of draw attention to it is the fact that if you strangle someone, they have, uh, you know, the blood vessels in their eyes break and he kind of clearly tells you, well, no, her eyes were perfectly clear, nothing wrong there. Also, you don't uh, blush back to, your, your cheeks don't blush back to health after you're dead. 
uh, the blood would have drained out of them because she's sitting in an upright position. So the fact that he sees her blushing as if she's alive starts to draw questions. Is she really dead? Is this some bizarre game they play? Uh, if she is dead, is he hallucinating the fact that she still looks like she's alive? Um, <clears throat> even beyond the questioning of the sanity of the narrator, from a psychological perspective, you can also look at this as a psychological analysis that can be applied to the author, Robert Browning. Um, and, and the reason that this one has always struck me is that there are some similarities in uh, Browning's uh, biography and what's going on in this poem. And he also has another poem, uh, My Last Duchess, which also deals with a husband who, that deals with a husband who murders a wife. Um, not that Robert Browning ever murdered his wife, um, but there was definitely a uh, power dynamics difference. Uh, Robert Browning was married to Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Uh, Elizabeth Barrett was an older woman um, than Robert, uh, and she was much more famous while she was alive. Um, she would have been, while she was still alive, she would have been like the A-lister in Hollywood, and he would have been like the, the B-movie star. You know, when people saw them at social events, it would be, oh, look, there's Elizabeth and her husband, uh, yeah, uh, Robert. Yeah, that's his name. So he always was beneath her uh, when she was alive, as far as um, <clears throat> as far as how famous uh, she was compared to him. So in a lot of ways, she was the one when she was alive who had the voice, the same way that the character, the female character in here is the one that calls to him, and he's not responding. Um, now, after Elizabeth is dead, um, Robert sort of really comes into his own and becomes famous in his own right, and so he gets the voice. Now, this is not a weird, kooky conspiracy theory that, hey, maybe Robert Browning killed Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Uh, she was quite a bit older, and she did die of uh, natural causes. But um, think if you think of this in similar terms of a dream, you know, think about how many dreams people have where just your worst, basest impulses kind of make themselves uh, known in a dream. Things that you would never act on in real life, but your dreams carry things that are still in you, even if you don't ever act on them. And a lot of ways, works of literature can be viewed almost like the waking dream of the author. You know, where does this, where do these ideas come from? They come from the author's experiences, the th things the author's read, and they come from the author's subconscious, the same way a dream does. You know, any author that tells you they're 100% in charge of every work of fiction they write, um, is either trying to fool you or trying to fool themselves. Because when you write works of fiction, which I have, I've written a couple of novels, um, you always come to a place when you're writing where the characters kind of wake up and start doing things that you hadn't necessarily planned for them to do, but they're things that a lot of times are consistent with what their character is. So it's almost like they... Uh, spring out of your unconscious and take on uh, depths and dimensions that you wouldn't imagined. 
So one of the ways to read this is kind of uh, as a psychological analysis of Browning is that this is kind of the conflict that he went through. The conflict between um, sort of being number two while his wife was alive. She was the big celebrity. He was still famous, but nowhere near as famous as she was. And then, as, as I said, as his career went on and as he got more well-known, he became extremely famous, as famous as she was. But it was not that way, especially early in their relationship. Um, she was definitely very much the brighter star of the two. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to break off for there. I do want you know, to kind of remind you about these, that this is absolutely not the most you could do with these. You you could do so many other readings of all of those types and of other types as well. Um, you could do a lot more with the feminist. You could do a lot more with the Marxist. You could do a lot more with the psychological. Um, but I wanted to give you a sense of how applying these tools that we've talked about give you, you know, a bigger sense of what is going on in this piece of literature and how does this tie to real life? So we started out with a poem where for some reason this guy just kills this woman and is hanging out with her and we have no idea why to, well, maybe this is because of, you know, the uh, feeling threatened by the female voice and having to silence that female voice so he can have a voice. Or maybe this is about him feeling class resentment because he's in love with her, she's in love with him, but they can't be together because of class. Or maybe this is, you know, has to do with um, kind of someone who is mentally ill. You know, one of the things I didn't even bring up was we don't even know if this Porphyria is even his lover. Um, this may be someone who comes in to take care of him. Uh, he may be you know, he may be wealthy, he may be somebody who's wealthy and very sick, and in those days, the family would often send somebody who was sick kind of off, especially if what they had might be contagious or might be an embarrassment to the family, they would kind of send them off away from the family and have someone come and take care of them. Uh, you have to remember this is, uh, they had mental institutions, but they were generally where they warehoused poor people. Wealthy people wouldn't send their relatives there. They would kind of send them off somewhere where they could be taken care of. So the fact that from a psychological perspective, Porphyria might not even be someone who's his lover. She might be his caretaker. That's why she comes in and starts up the fire and makes sure that he's warm and comfortable because she's taking care of him. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to break off for there. I uh, hope all of you are doing well, and I hope to talk to all of you again soon.